0: 1 Corinthians chapter 1 at verse 18, we're continuing our study in the book, Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. Not actually studying the book, but using it as a basis for a sermon series. And if you haven't gotten that book and started to read that book, I would strongly advise it. A wonderful book, an apologetic book. That's not doesn't mean we're apologizing. That's it, using in the, fence, the sense of the defense of the faith. My youngest daughter read this book a few months ago and it was one of the few books she took to Ireland with her when she went over there to study abroad for the fall semester and found it to be a very helpful tool in speaking to fellow students over there and uh, when she uh, got the book a couple, um, well I guess it was last spring, she ended up staying almost the whole night reading through it, she was so interested in it and then she gave it, she told us that she gave it to a friend and that friend, um, excuse me about the mic, that friend ended up doing the same thing, staying up half the night reading most of the book. Is that working now? I, it was slipping down. I'll try to get it right. First Corinthians chapter one, at verse eighteen, a very familiar text about the message and the power of the cross. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the world, through its wisdom, for since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not know him, For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word, and may we understand it as the Spirit helps us. Everyone understands power. A three-year-old child understands power to some degree when his four-year-old brother takes away his toy and he can't get it back unless he calls on a higher power, and that's mom. He took my toy. That's another exercise of power, isn't it? A quarterback understands power when he gets run over by a blitzing 300 pound defender, and he can barely scrape himself up off the football turf. Hamas, or ha- Hamas, the terrorist organization in the Gaza Strip, understands power when the army of the nation of Israel bombs them for a week and then invades. That's another form of power. There are many kinds of power in the world, and all of us who've lived for any length of time learn to understand and reckon with with different types of power, whether it's the pecking order in the office or whether it's the playground or whether it's society and social order and things like that. There are all kinds of power. And we understand what essentially at the heart is worldly power of all these kinds. But the cross of Jesus Christ and the power of the cross of Christ, we know is a power that is not understood by the world. And yet, understanding the power of Christ and his cross is central to being reconciled to God, to being made right with God. And it's central to knowing and living in true fellowship with God. So it's something that we must understand, and that's why this text is such a central text in God's word. Our first point is to understand something about the foolishness of the cross in the world's eyes. And that point is this, the cross is foolishness to the world. Paul talks about that here. In verse 18, he says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then he talks about the wisdom of the world and God saying that he will destroy the wisdom of the wise and he will frustrate the intelligence of the intelligent. And then he talks about where, where does the wisdom of the world leave us? The cross of Christ, the power of the cross, is fundamentally misunderstood by the world. It's foolishness. Why is that? Well, I have 2 subpoints under this first point. Why? Well, number one, because the cross is contrary to what the world values and to the way the world thinks. It's opposite to the normal way the world thinks about things. And I say that, though, apart from the influence of Christianity, the world doesn't think this way. The world Values power, status, wealth, worldly influence, and strength. But the cross sets forth a whole other way of humility, lowliness, brokenness, actually dying. And so it's contrary, it's opposite to the world's way of thinking. Although we who live in the West shouldn't be surprised that cross-like thinking has invaded and pervaded many of our culturally cultural ways that we think. So that thousands and millions of America go to the movies and watch The Lord of the Rings and Frodo humbling himself and Frodo and Sam basically going to their death to destroy the most powerful weapon, the enemy's ring, and... Our society understands that. They understand Charles Dickens and all his n- novels, which often have the whole theme of self sacrifice and that distinctively different way of looking at life. It's in movies, it's in novels, it's in books, it's all over the place. It's really, it pervades Western thought. But that's not the normal way the world thinks. What we're seeing there is we're seeing the influence of Christianity in the world. But fundamentally, the world doesn't understand the cross, even though it's all around. And that analogy is used many times. The world values power. The world loves a winner. Typically, think of the way the world respects power. Certainly it respects military power. You can negotiate so far, but negotiation only works when there's military power of some sort behind it. Or the world respects wealth. The world respects status, position, power. I was listening to an NPR, National Public Radio interview the other day about someone uh, who's from the far left and who somehow was involved in something at the White House and was actually uh, in the room with President Bush. And it was interesting to hear this person interviewed because the person didn't want to come out and say that he enjoyed being with President Bush because that's really politically incorrect to say that. But he was, he was speaking about it. It was very exciting to be there in the White House with President Bush, but he had to kind of get in a few jibes here and there to make it sound like, well, he wasn't enjoying it that much. You know, well, the point was, though, Anyone, well, you know, would feel honored somewhat to be in the White House with President Bush, even if you have a totally opposite political view. And this person was trying to walk this fine line and describe it. He wasn't doing a very good job, I don't think, but I understood what he was trying to do. The world honors and it thinks a lot about physical strength or intelligence, wisdom, Having three PhDs, you know, if I had three PhDs, you know, my status would go up in the world, wouldn't it? And yet, it's the opposite. God says, it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. And so, when it comes to doing religion, the world very naturally imparts its way of looking at things in the religious realm. And the world's way of doing religion or of coming to God is saying, I will take care of things. I will make myself acceptable. I will make myself strong or good or righteous somehow before God. Somehow, I will do what it takes to make myself worthy of heaven or worthy of fellowship with God. In fact, we saw that in the sermon this morning with the sacrifices of Cain and Abel, that essentially Cain was doing just that. He was disregarding the command of God, and he was doing religion his way, in a worldly way. And I'm sure that as you think about what typical worship in Corinth was like in Paul's day, as he wrote this, this is what religion was all about in the Roman Empire. The people who were the typical pagan worshipers at Corinth would go to the local temple And they would offer some kind of offering, whether it's uh, an animal or some kind of sacrifice or incense, something that they would buy, something that they would sacrifice in order to do that, and they would make themselves acceptable in some way to that God. And we know that the same is true today. The cross is diametrically opposed to the way the normal person thinks about religion and thinks about God. We don't think about it in terms of God having to do something for us through the cross. The natural person thinks about it in terms of what do I need to do to make myself acceptable with God? Well, that's one way that the cross is foolishness to the world. Tim Keller points out another way that he often sees dealing with people in Manhattan, and that's this way. The world can never understand why Jesus had to die. It's foolishness again. It all seems so unnecessary to the person from the world's point of view. And I think this covers more of the stumbling block idea in verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. The Gentiles of Paul's day just thought it was utter foolishness that... Some poor Palestinian living in the backwater of the world could die on a cross, and that would save us from our sins and bring us to God. The Jews, who who knew more, obviously, about the true God, to them it was a stumbling block. Why? Because in the Jewish mindset of that first century, they expected the Messiah to be a conquering hero. They didn't somehow, they weren't able to see the Old Testament Predictions of a suffering servant. And we read back through Isaiah 53 and passages like that and say, Why didn't they see it? Well, the truth is, if we would have been back there living in that time, we wouldn't have seen it either unless God had opened our eyes to it. So it was a stumbling block. In fact, Tim Keller says about people who come to his church, people who essentially may not know much about Christianity, and he says that that's one of the most frequent questions they ask. Why uh, did Jesus have to die? In fact, he says that's a much more frequent question than the question, does God exist? People don't ask that as much, he says. It's more, why did Jesus have to die? I don't get that. Why is that? And often behind that question is this question that lies behind it, why couldn't God just forgive sin? Why can't he do that? Isn't God great enough that he can just do that? Especially, well, maybe in the case where they they would say if somebody's genuinely sorry for their sins, can't God just forgive sin? Why can't he just do it that way? Why all this blood? Why Jesus dying? In fact, some would say Jesus dying on the cross sounds to some like the gods of ancient times who somehow had to be appeased by human sacrifice. They were these kind of capricious, malignant gods who had to be appeased. And uh, people have even used the words, philosophers have even used the words divine child abuse in speaking about the cross. You know, it's foolishness. It's a stumbling block to human natural ways of thinking. And so, When we think of how the cross is foolishness to the world, we should stop and ask ourselves, how do I view the cross? To me, personally, each one of us must ask, is this something that I see as unnecessary or somehow abhorrent or strange or not needed? If so, we're missing the central doctrine of the gospel and we need to understand it. And that brings us to my next main point and that is the cross is actually the power of God for salvation to those who believe. We see it in verse 18. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, but the cross to those to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then down in verse 24, but to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. The cross of Christ is actually the power of God for salvation. And I want to look at that under two headings here. It delivers us from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin. We look at Second Corinthians And we see the cross again highlighted there. And in 2 Corinthians 5.21, we see how the cross delivers us from the penalty of sin. This first aspect. God made him, Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's this great exchange it's just this wonderful thing. God took our sin and put it on, cross. God, on the cross. God made him, Christ who had no sin, to be sin for us. So our sin put on Christ, and then so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, the righteousness of Christ given to those who believe in him. This first aspect highlights the very nature of God. Why is it that Christ had to die? It has to do with the very character of God and the nature of forgiveness itself. God is a holy God, totally set apart from all sin, and we are sinners who have rebelled against him. Even if our rebellion is, we might say, passive in a sense, we might not be thinking a lot about the fact that we're rebelling against God when we do, but nevertheless we are. And in the cross, God himself pays the price. For our sin in Christ. Do you see why this is not like an arbitrary or vengeful deity needing to be appeased? It's because of the very nature of forgiveness, the very nature of sin and forgiveness. Keller uses a very mundane illustration from everyday life, but sometimes it's good to do that. He says, Let's say a friend of yours borrows your car. And as he's backing it out of your driveway, you've got a nice little wall at the end of your yard and a gate that's open there. And he's backing out your car, and he runs, you know, he's not keeping the car straight. He backs out, knocks over the gate, breaks down some of the wall. Okay, well, it's too bad that occurred, right? But he's saying, think about that cost. There's a cost involved someone's going to pay for the cost. Okay, let's say insurance pays for the car, but then the wall and the gate, there's two options. Either he pays for the gate and the wall, or you pay for the gate and the wall. Of course, you probably could say, well, there's a third option, you split the cost. All right, let's not not, uh, break things up that much. But somehow the cost of the damages must be borne by someone. And what Keller goes on to say in just a masterful way, if you read the book, is that this is true for all kinds of wrongdoing and sin and hurting someone else. Whenever someone is wronged, and especially we see this when someone is seriously wronged, we know that there is this indelible sense that we all have when we see that or when we experience it, that there is a cost to be paid. And no one just dismisses that cost, especially if it's a serious wrong. And again, there are only two ways to deal with that cost of an offense or a wrong that someone commits against someone else. One is the person who did the wrong has to pay. And if you've been wronged, if you follow this pathway, you want to punish them to make them pay the way you might confront them out of anger, the way you might try to get back at them, or even if you don't actively get back at them, you may be wishing and hoping that evil befalls them somehow, and they get paid back. In fact, many movie and television themes are kind of like that, and don't you, know, don't you notice how we all like that? and we enter into that when we see the bad guy who's been bad all along, and finally there's payback at the end. Why is it that we human beings all like that so much? Isn't it from our sense of, of just, justice? We, we, we are glad to see justice done. So that person has to pay themselves, but notice that if you take option number one here, if you, were, if you punish them or if you rejoice in evil happening to them, And if you do that out of anger, out of vengeance, out of vindictiveness, you pay a price in your own soul. It tears down your character as well. But that's not our point here. The second point is if somebody wrongs somebody else, the person who has been wronged can pay the cost himself or herself. And that's really what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not just dismissing it and acting like nothing was wrong. Forgiveness requires that you yourself absorb the penalty or the cost in some way. And this, this goes beyond mere material costs, like, you know, the, the gate and the wall that the car hit. This has all kinds of ramifications for emotional cost, spiritual cost internal costs, loss of freedom, risks of love, things that have changed in your life, that's all involved in the emotional overall cost of forgiveness. And Keller says the Bible teaches us that that second option, that second way is what God did for us in Christ. It wasn't like an ancient deity that needed to be appeased because uh, the sacrifice that was offered was God himself offering himself in the person of Jesus Christ. God himself bore the debt for our wrongdoing, our rebellion, our sin. He bore the cost in himself to forgive us. That's the amazing power and way of the cross. In fact, God's divine forgiveness is the pattern for all human forgiveness. It's not like we're looking at human forgiveness and how human forgiveness works and we're somehow projecting it on the God that we would like God to be. That's not true at all. The truth is, this is divine forgiveness. The Bible reveals it. And when we start living it out in our lives, in human relationships, we are patterning our forgiveness after the pattern of God himself through Jesus Christ and his cross. And so Christ bears our penalty. Do you see the tremendous power that Paul is speaking about here? The power unto salvation. Because then that breaks down the cause of our separation from God. Now we are received by God through Christ. What a tremendous power the cross has to take away the penalty of our sin. But the cross is also the power of God in the second way that I mentioned, in it that it delivers us from the power of sin. This deliverance from the power of sin is also talked about in 2 Corinthians 5, in verses 14 and 15 there. Let me read that. For Christ's love compels us because we are all convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died, and he who died for all, that is Christ, that those who live should no longer live for themselves. Do you hear what the Bible's saying there? That's the power of the cross, that those Christians who have entered into the power of the cross should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Do you see how massive the transformation is in people's lives when they come to faith in Christ? This is the power of the cross, that the cross delivers us from the power of sin. And there's no better way to talk about the power of sin than to say sin is fundamentally self-absorption, living for self. It's inescapable in this world. Everyone in this world is living for himself or herself, except for people who have been delivered from that by the power of the cross and are now living for Jesus Christ, no longer fundamentally for themselves. It's only by the power of the cross. Do you realize how powerful that is? Now, in the Christian's life and experience, that happens decisively in conversion. There's a radical transformation. There's a decisive reorientation of our whole lives. And then there's the continuous out working in the rest of our lives on this earth of this decisive change. That increasingly the Christian is someone who knows the power of Jesus Christ and the power of his cross in daily life and experience and more and more learns what it means to no longer live for myself, but rather to live for him who died for me and rose again. That's what the Christian life is all about. But it's brought about by the power of of the cross. I was reading an article by Tim Lane, who's the director of the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation in the Philadelphia area, and he was reflecting back on the past year, and He was he's a man that's a little bit younger than me, and he was saying, you know, he was thinking about his life, and he was feeling somewhat like, boy, I'm just really stale in my growth with the Lord. I feel like I'm not going anywhere. I'm not growing much. And he was meditating on that and praying about it, and he began thinking about the beginning of his life in Christ about 25 years ago, when he was a young man, when he first came to know Christ. And as he meditated and prayed about that, the Lord just helped him to see that, well, yes, he still has a long way to go, but it was as it was as if the Lord was saying, Tim, look how much stresses you had on your life, how many stresses you had on your life when you were 18. You were relatively footloose and fancy-free. You have a lot of time on your own. You know, you were kind of your own boss. You could do what you wanted. Now he's got all these responsibilities at his job. He's a husband. He's called to love his wife. He's got all those responsibilities. That's hard. That shows you your sin a lot. He's a parent. He's got kids. He's got teenage kids and all the things that go on with parenting kids. And, And so in a sense, the Lord was saying, yes, you still sin and you still need to grow in me. But it's like the Lord had taken off the five-pound weights he was working with when he was 18, and now he's put on 500-pound weights, and he's grown a lot in Christ. That's the power of the cross. And he was saying, you know, he was urging his readers by what he was saying, just remember the power of Jesus Christ and his cross is at work in your life, whatever your circumstances are, and however heavy the weights might be that God has placed on you. And I think there is a truth to the fact that as we grow in Christ and as our lives grow on, there are sometimes increasingly heavy burdens and trials that the Lord gives us to grow us more in Christ. And so the nature of sin, if it's described as living for self, we need to understand that in the world, in our society, people are able to live for self in very respectable and in socially acceptable ways. In other words, to live for yourself, you don't have to go out of here and do all the things that everyone would know would be absolutely wrong. You can go out of here and this week, you can live for yourself and do it in a way that nobody would really even hardly notice unless they knew you really well. You see, it's possible to live for yourself and to still be socially acceptable in the world But God's goal for us is this radical change brought about by the power of the cross to change us from within so that now what we value, what we really worship, what we desire and love, the way that we talk to others, the way we think about others, the way we pray the way we are in our relationships with those who are closest to us, that all of those really fundamental and more or less hidden things about our lives are more and more transformed by the power of Jesus Christ and his cross. That is the power of the cross, delivering us from the penalties of sin and delivering us from the power of sin. Initially, when we come to Christ, more and more as we grow, grow in Christ, And finally, when we see Jesus face to face, that deliverance will be completed. What a glorious thing. And so we come to our last brief point. Well, how does a person then experience the power of the cross in his or her life? Well, we go back to 1 Corinthians, and we see that that the power of the cross is the power of God for salvation to those who are being saved, verse 18. And we also see that... The power of the cross is for those who believe. And so we enter the power of the cross and it has this transforming way way in our lives by really we could say two things. Number one, that we stop thinking like the world thinks about Jesus and his cross and instead we come to have God's view of the cross. We no longer oppose the cross-centered, Christ-centered view that the Bible sets forth, but we embrace it. To the world, the cross is foolishness. To the world, it's a stumbling block. To the world, it's something ludicrous. And so we come to grips with that. And we say in the words of our hymn, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. You know, we've sung those words so many times, those words kind of just zip through our minds. It's saying, nothing, I have nothing. I come, I cling to your cross. I reject the world's way. And really, it's very offensive to the natural mind to do this. But it's saying, I reject the wisdom of the world in trying to get to God through my own power. I embrace the cross of Jesus Christ. But also, to view the cross God's way, as you come to have a right understanding of the cross you must actively put your whole trust in Jesus Christ to actually save you from the power and the penalty of sin. That's We read the beginning of the service from Isaiah 12 about trusting in the Lord, receiving salvation by actively believing in him. We enter by believing in Jesus and what he did, no longer relying on any of our good deeds or our performance, we see the cross as the basis of our acceptance with God. And then once we've come to Christ, we continue to live daily that way. Trusting Jesus Christ. Trusting the power of his cross. cross, Not trusting our own self-sufficient strength in any way. And see him as the source of power and divine might in the daily struggle with living for self. That's the way the christian live lives and as we confront pockets of resistance in our own hearts to the lordship of christ it's only in the power of the cross that defeats those pockets of re- resistance and makes us more and more like jesus christ and so i need to ask you have you come to grips with your view of the cross have you come to see it from god's point of view And then have you embraced Jesus Christ? And are you trusting him this week? We all need to be encouraged to do that, don't we? We all face spiritual warfare this week in which we're going to be tempted to rely on ourselves or rely on some human worldly source of comfort or strength or hope. And the Lord Jesus Christ wants to wean us from those things and wants us to more and more rest in him alone. That's the power of the cross. I conclude with an illustration I got off my son's uh, blog, his weblog, and I put this in because the uh, Eagles, I know Eagles fans are probably, I was. I saw the very end of the game that the Eagles won, but I thought, well, we'll have to use a sports illustration here, and Stephen, my son, put in his blog an insight about the Phillies, you know, the Phillies, probably some of you know, the Phillies won the World Series this year, but um, this is, I'm going to read some of his blog to you in this, because it talks about this fundamental issue, he says, The Phillies, I finally get baseball. In fact, I finally get sports in general. Yes, I confess, I am a very lukewarm sports fan. However, I have simply never understood the emotional highs and lows that true fans experience as a part of the rhythm of their lives as their team triumphs or suffers defeat. As the Phillies approached the World Series, this cluelessness truly became apparent as my indifference came into sharp contrast with my housemates, late-night, bleary-eyed, ecstatic enthusiasm. He was talking about the Phillies winning the World Series. If not for my good friend, and I won't mention his name, a true Phillies fan, I would yet be without understanding. But he explained a truly profound reality. It goes like this. There is something very right about a people having champions. In this case, the Phillies are the champions of the people of Philadelphia. They do not only represent the people against the opponent, the foe, they are deeply connected to them. There is identity. The true fan talks in the first-person plural, we won, or we just couldn't pull it off. When the champions are victorious, the people join in their victory. It is not nearly as much about the specifics of the game as it is about this dynamic, identifying with the team, feeling their joy, experiencing the joy of the community of fans, despising the common enemy. Hence, there are many different sports of all sorts with which capture the heart of peoples all over the world. A representative champion, a foe to be defeated, an intimate identification with the champion, rejoicing with a whole heart, and yes, even worship as the victory parade goes down Broad Street. This is a little drama reflecting the true story of reality. This is a tiny picture of a far greater champion, a truly evil foe, a deeper identification and rightful worship. This reflects something of the gospel. In this light, I can now understand why the human heart is so drawn to sports. It is a wonderful picture of Jesus Christ, whether you know it or not, and there is something in us wired to respond to such a story. We long for the champion and the drama of the battle. Of course, it can turn into a horrible counterfeit that causes us to forget the real thing, like the spouse who reads cheap romance novels and neglects the marriage. So I think I understand I am still not a fan. I realize that takes time. You can't just identify at such a profound level with something unless you invest yourself and immerse yourself in a community which also is invested in it. But my goodness, if you do take the time, what incredible joy awaits the victors. The euphoria of Philadelphia is simply stunning. If that... Is the euphoria that comes when a couple of men beat another couple of men in an arbitrary game? What will the joy be like when the King of Kings, who gave his life for his people that they might become children of God, tramples death, tramples sin, the wicked, and Satan, and ushers in the glories of heaven? What will the rejoicing of the multitudes from every tribe and nation sound like? What tears of joy will flow and deepest affections will burst out in song and rapture? I don't think the Broad Street celebrations will even hold a match to it. Let us invest ourselves deeply in knowing our Savior that our rejoicing will be fitting and honoring on that great day. But wait, the victory is already won. Isn't that the power of the cross? Amen. Father, we do thank you for the victory being won, that our champion, the Lord Jesus Christ, has triumphed over the foe, triumphed over sin and death and hell for us, and that you would so identify us with him that we would enter into that glory and that joy. Father, stir our hearts afresh. Help us to live near the cross this week. We thank you for the truth of the gospel. We stand in it through Jesus, our risen and conquering king, and ask this in his name.